You're watching Deprogrammed. This is the New Culture Forum's latest show, committed to fighting back against the forces of ideological conformity, particularly among the young. My name's Harrison Pitt, I'm a senior editor at the European Conservative, and I'm thrilled to be joined today, as ever, by Evan Riggs, who is a freelance journalist, and our special guest this week, Doug Stokes, who is a professor of international relations at the University of Exeter and a senior advisor to the Legatum Institute. Now, Doug, uh, decolonization is almost always in the news perennially in the news, but particularly so recently, um, after many in the academic world have been celebrating Hamas's attack on Israel as an, as a, as an example of the ideology in action. Uh, how do you think we should go about pinning down this very, sh this seemingly very shape-shifting term? Uh, well, it's, it, 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 I think that it, it comes from a much deeper current in Western culture. If we think about the new left in the 60s and the impact that that had on Western civilization and philosophy and theory, Mm. Um, it had a, a number of big implications, one of which was the uh, affirmation, not just of the individual, but also of the freewheeling nature of social life. Mm. And ultimately, one can escape from one's definition and you can self-define. And it was about, you know, a search for this sort of inner truth. Mm. So ultimately, on a, on a sort of almost a transcendental level, you had the affirmation of this subjectivity. And at the same time, you had developments in social theory, and I think it's really important that we understand that a lot of what we see in Western culture, it derives from deeper philosophical currents, and we forget that at, at great peril, mm -hmm. in, especially if you wish to sort of take back control, ultimately. You have to understand these deeper currents. <clears throat> So it affirms the individual, and it affirms the primacy of subjectivity, and it and uh, it draws on these deeper philosophical currents of postmodernism and post postcolonialism. But it, to encapsulate that is really it's about social what's called social constructivism. Yes, and social constructivism essentially argues that uh, everything is relative. There's no such thing as science or objectivity or truth. And therefore, then, everything is ultimately a power play of different inter interpretations that are endlessly contesting each other. It's a very kind of Foucault, Foucauldian idea. And Foucault, in turn, drew from Nietzsche. Mm. So it's kind of the, this, this life is an endless truth struggle, if you will. So to understand decolonizing in, in, in relation to how it's, it's kind of instantiated within the Anglophone institutions, mm -hmm. in particular the universities, one has, to, one has to understand that it, it draws on that deeper philosoph philosophical current. So to even talk about truth or history as sets of facts or to un the archives themselves, etc. These are unproblematic. These are problematic claims. V very problematic claims because ultimately what, what you're doing is you're ultimately you're affirming your truth. Mm -hmm. And because no truth exists, mm -hmm. your truth is, is a form of domination and yes. hegemony. And then when you couple this with intersectional theory, which is what decolonizing is really all about, yes. where essentially you have a pyramid, and a sort of intersectional pyramid of endless oppression groups, and at the very top of the power hierarchy are kind of ultimately a white heterosexual men, and then and, and, and it, it seeks to sort of subvert that ultimately 
this is the claims. The claims are not, you can't substantiate them in data if you look yes. at the data, but we won't go into that. These are the truth claims of intersectionalism. So you, you couple that social constructivism, everything's about contestation, there's no such thing as truth, everything's about a power play, and this normative commitment to intersectional theory. And these canonical identities that go along with that. And yeah, and, and which, which foregrounds identity is the, is the primary social modality. The pro primary social logic is one of identity. Mm -hmm. And therefore, and then you couple that with the collapse of moral authority in the Anglophone institutions and the attempt to gatekeep and to inculcate a politics of risk and vulnerability that we see in the universities, but also through technocratic forms of political governance to manage these forms of risk. So when you couple all those elements up, we really begin to understand the collapse, mm. ultimately, of really important sets of values, also the institutional confidence that we need, ultimately. And, and so, so that, that's, that's kind of broadly speaking, mm. kind of, yeah. Is it, is it really that complicated, though? Because I think if we were to trace back the, you know, sort of the etymology, whatever, of, of decolonization, <coughs> you would probably find decolonists all the way back in colonial eras before intersectionality or these sort of like Foucaultian or, um, or you know, the philosophy of Jack Derrida as yeah. well really came to be prominent in, in like the 60s. So doesn't decolonization go much farther back? I should have, I should have highlighted that there's a temporal dimension to this. And there's a, there's a distinction. The, the distinction, I think, is between the forms of de, de, decolonization, political decolonization, i.e. Mm. dissolution of the European empires, and then the f various forms of nationalist uh, and sometimes socialist and communist insurgencies that you saw as a result of the vacuums created by the collapse of European authority. So that, that's, that's a political process. But I think that's distinct from the kinds of social theories that we see uh, what I was just talking about. Mm. I think I think that's distinct. I mean, we're not we're not in a we're not in a colonial era. Yeah. So, so 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 the the claim ultimately is that um, the, the we need to decolonize our institutions now because the ideological effects of that earlier period yeah. are still with us. It's about the legacy of empire rather than the fact and of, we, we, of and empire and, itself. And in particular, the, the the ideological historical legacy of empire. Yes. So the claim ultimately of most uh, intersectional theorists and activists is um, that if you have a disparity, in particular a negative disparity of some kind, it's indicative of some underlying form of systemic discrimination. How much of this is just like sort of Nietzschean resentment or just like blatant Marxist resentment <coughs> um, in a fancy new dress? Well, interestingly, and this is an interesting kind of side point here, I don't want to get too theoretical, but a lot of the um, the post-modern and post-structuralist and post-colonial theorists were, were they drew on Marxism, mm. and in particular the kind of the cultural aspects, the cultural theory aspects of Marxism, but they were very much against the more traditional structural Marxism yes. in the French Academy. So Louis Althusser was a very you know, was prominent uh, uh, structural Marxist. He talked about the repressive state apparatus. So he mm. argued that states were capitalist states were characterized by a repressive state apparatus, but an ideological state apparatus. And he very much drew on the historical material tradition of Marxism, i.e., objectivism and science and science. And also, if you look at Marxism, it does ultimately have a teleological view of history. It draws yes. upon a, a, a history as a historical sense of progression. So Foucault and Derrida and others turned against that. Completely against that. Yeah. They they argue against objectivity. They argue against this teleological view of history. Mm. They're anti-enlightenment, 
uh, and they're, they're and they're far more playful and yes. and, and, a, and a stress on epistemology as opposed as opposed to objective relations of production. Yes, we so, so Marx made made a very um, important point in the nineteenth century of trying to distinguish his form of socialism, which he called scientific socialism, yeah. from the so-called utopian ver variants yeah. of socialism, which were particularly prominent in, in France. Yeah. And so that goes to show in itself the fact that Marx is trying to bolster his theory of history by calling it a science, yeah. goes to show that like, it's very important that we understand that Marxism predates the so-called postmodern term yeah, so, so, in, so, in well, Western intellectual history. So, so Marxism in, in its kind of more traditional scientific objectivist theological form is historical materialism. I, it roots progress or it roots its theory in iron laws of in dialectical materialism, historical materialism, mm -hmm. objective, so there's no objectivism, objectivism ultimately to that form of Marxism. So Foucault and Derrida in particular were very anti that and that their, their form of power wasn't about a ruling class or an economic elite imposing its power on, it was, for them power was far more playful, it was, mm -hmm. it was constitutive. Power basically yeah, circulated within regimes of truth, discourses, uh, epistemes, and that's that's how we get back to de decolonization. Because if you reject that, if everything is the, the power play, then and there's no there's nothing objective, then it's then these it sets of discourses. So how how then do we generate political change is we change discourses. Exactly. We change. It's, it's kind of like a form of ideological warfare. Yes, exactly, and so. So, I mean, episteme for Foucault did literally mean a sort of a sort of structure of knowledge, and, and that contains within it the idea that knowledge isn't something that we discover in the world; it's something no. which we make, and we make in the interests of of upholding certain power interests. Yeah. And so, th th this is where the legacy of empire comes into it, because all of a sudden, the people who call themselves post-colonialists, it's not that they want to kick the British out of Kenya anymore; that's already happened. Mm -hmm. What they want to do, or what they say, what they say they want to do is to attack the, the, the standards and the ideas and the concepts which upheld that and which persist to this day in the form of coloniality. Well, well, in, interestingly, they, 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 they exactly, that's exactly what they do, but they go almost a step further insofar as these epistemes or discourses don't just allow us to understand the world in mm. a certain type of way. They, they allow the world to be constructed. So essentially there are power relationships depending upon mm -hmm. how we understand the world. Foucault did a lot of history of sexuality. He, yeah. he, was, a, he was a very prominent sort of gay man, basically. <laughs> and um, and uh, he, he, he talked about the, the changing nature, or, 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 or he talked a lot about madness too, the changing yes. nature of madness. Definitions so, of madness. Definitions of madness. of madness. So madness in the kind of medieval period often potentially had forms of wisdom and spiritual insight and spiritual wisdom. And as you had the advent of industrialization sure. and the, the kind of the enlightenment, then then madness then, then became something threatening to the rationality mm. uh, of of society, and then have, therefore had to be contained and corralled. And so, essentially, whilst the the the, the, the phenomena of madness remained the same, the, the the epistemes and discourses that describe that changed, and therefore the power relationships changed, and you could treat these mad subjects differently. Mm. So, going back to this. Decolonizing is about challenging those epistemes and those discourses, deconstructing mm. them. What, what, what doesn't completely satisfy me about that, yeah. though, is that Evan is right to say that you know, what we're talking about sounds incredibly theoretical and incredibly yeah. arcane, and yet when you have these academics mm -hmm. cheering on what happened, like something which isn't theoretical, something that isn't arcane, we're talking about like pure vi violent bloodlust of the sort that we saw on October 7th, cheering that on. Mm -hmm. like, what is the relationship between all of this, which is about ideas, about standards, about like, civilizational constructs, and just rank violence? 
Well, I think... Why I, is that cheered as decolonisation? Well, because I, I think that what you'll have... I mean, I, I don't want to speak for these people at all, mm. but I think what they would say would be, well, essentially Israel is a colonial settler state mm-hmm. and therefore decolonising is, is never pretty. Mm-hmm. Uh, often it emerges in very violent forms. So they would justify it in the same way that people like Simone de Beauvoir and other French intellectuals justified the Algerian FLN. Yeah. They view yeah. it in that term rather than in post-colonial terms. Well, I think that they would... I, I don't want, again, I don't want to speak to that, but I, I would presume that they would say that the, 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 this, that the Israel is, is a kind of settler-colonial state, so Hamas is... It's part of that broader it's resistance, resistance yeah. to this form of ultimately kind of get a sort of settler colonialism, mm-hmm. uh, and but I think interestingly the chickens are going to co- coming home to roost on that because we do live in a post-colonial period. Uh, the, the world looks extraordinarily different. That the arguments about Israel are very very contested, mm-hmm. um, and I think that a lot of the people who have been pushing these ideas in a kind of dalliant dalliance as a form of dalliance and intellectual dalliance uh-huh. the, the terrible terrible events of october 7th have really brought that home yes. in terms of sharpening the kinds of co- the consequences of a lot, a lot of the, the, the politics of, that they articulate yes. and i think that that that's an interesting inflection point and i think we'll, we'll, we'll see the implications of that play play out as we go forward so. what would those implications look like I think, well, I, I don't, I mean, I think that what you'll see will be a much stronger resistance against the, the casual uh, uh, invocation of these theories. Mm. Uh, we see it, for example, in America, but also in this country, as when we talk about EDI, Equality, Diversity, mm. Inclusion, or, or DEI, or whichever acronym you wish to use. That is really, it's, it's taken as a moral mission. It's taken, it has an, a, a kind of moral energy to it. But underlying it are deeply contested political ideas, and in particular intersectional, intersectional, intersectionalism, intersectional mm. theory. Uh, and so I think that the, a, lot of, a lot of what we're seeing on, on campuses now will... It, some of that's coming home to roost. I think that mm. we're seeing, you know the contestation and the implications of some of that stuff. Do you not think there's kind of a, a misstep that a lot of people are making right now? Um, this might be a kind of controversial point to make, but mm-hmm. I saw a student in America who was doing this, uh, this news interview of, she was like, being a Jew at NYU uh, means, you know, X, Y, and Z. And one of them was learning that DEI doesn't apply to you. She was like trying to rhyme it off, right? Mm-hmm. But I thought that was like completely the opposite lesson that should have been learned. <coughs> it's not that DEI shouldn't just also apply to Jews who now want to, or at least she wants to be seen as a sort of minority protected community, <coughs> but that the entire framework of DEI is pathological and should be kind of eradicated. Mm-hmm. Do you not think that we're at risk with what's happening now with Israel and Palestine of making a mistake of just basically expanding DEI rather than cutting it out? I don't know. 
Hmm. It's a hard. It's, that's, that's, that's a very very hard. <laughs> it might be worth saying. It's already happened at the University of Michigan. Like the DEI, the, like, yeah, the DEI, the, in response to this, rather than dismantling the whole apparatus, which leads to precisely the sort of problem, you just try. You, what you do is you include Jews as an accredited victim group as well, which sounds all well and good, but it, it means that certain other groups are left out. And so, like white, whites, for example. I mean, many, many people would would say that anti-whiteness on yeah. in, in these causes has been endemic. For, for 20 years and, yeah. and while it's quite right that we should be calling out the anti-semitism which is very much you know fashionable at the mm -hmm. moment it, 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 it's rather tedious for some people um, to to, and, and galling to reflect on, on the fact that there's no prospect of, of there seems that there's this concern among conservatives that why is it that we can only ever couch our objections to DEI in minoritarian terms? Mm. Why, I mean, because whites are majority in America, they're a majority here. Mm. Like, why is it any better to demonize a majority than it is to demonize a, 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 a minority? Certainly, we shouldn't be demonizing anyone. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there's this sort of, it's, it's almost if it's socially permissible to attack DEI because it attacks Jews, and it's also correct to do so, but it wouldn't be considered socially permissible to do that for whites who've, who've borne the brunt of the DEI regime much longer than, than Jews have. In America, at least, in recent years. Yeah, but in the in the UK, uh, at least, I think I, I I agree with you. If 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 the if the argument is that we should reject DEI in its entirety, mm. I think it's absolute nonsense. Yes, complete mm. nonsense. Uh, I think that it foregrounds intersectional theory, which foregrounds the primacy of identity over the individual or even over over merit. Or what are or the universal, or, or, or the universal, which are incredibly civilizationally important foundational values. Absolutely, uh, and it's danced on the pin of various legal innovations mm. in British law, at least, and yes. others. Yes. And, and obviously, you've re obviously read Christopher Caldwell's stuff on mm -hmm. the Constitution yes. in in the, in the states, and it's done that. And civil rights was almost a new constitution. Yes. So, so I, I think I think that the fact that we've allowed ourselves, especially in the last three or four years. Where EDI and ultimately, it really is a, it's an American corporate uh, ideology. It's a cult, it's a, and and it's very it's very similar to a, to a form of of religion, and, and it's faith based yes. as well. Very faith based. It's articulates. It's very. You know, so I just think I just think it's ridiculous, and the fact that we've allowed it to, to sort of manifest itself so strongly in British institutions. Yes. And now everywhere we look, it's about quality, diversity, yes. and inclusion. Those are fundamentally, for a start, they're very vague. They're kind of vague, empty signifiers. Mm. And what you tend to see also is, is um, politics is, is articulated and driven forward by essentially moral claims. Most, most politics is really about you know, a moral contestation. And so, so equality, diversity, inclusion sounds really nice, doesn't it? And it, and it but, but, but under the under under those under those concepts, under yes. those empty signifiers, are often high authoritarian, illiberal, uh, totalitarian concepts, and also well. much and also not as neutral as they're pretending to be. For, like, for example, like diversity as a neutral term might like, let, let's assume that diversity actually is a strength. If diversity is a strength and it should be a goal of social policy, then diversity should. Should, should, should be indiscriminate, so to speak. So, for example, yeah. like we, if, if, if I were to take the Tower Hamlet local council, which is pr predominantly Muslim at the moment, and I were to re swap out four Muslims for, for four whites, I would be objectively making that council more diverse. <coughs> Yet, of course, no one is in favour of that form of diversity. No one's in favour of um, making rap music more diverse or making the NBA more diverse. Mm -hmm. like, so what, once you actually examine what diversity means for these people, it becomes very obvious that, very obvious that it just means less white. And so what, what, what you've basically got is a legal apparatus whereby we're, um, whereby we're com committed by law to making all of our institutions 
less white over the course, and, and that, that is considered which, proof of progress. Which, which then has really pernicious effects, because for a start, I mean, di diversity to me is, I couldn't give a toss about diversity. If I go, mm. if I go into somewhere and most of the people working there are black women, and, they, and they're, they're doing a fantastic job, and they make great products or whatever, whatever social logic or economic logic it mm -hmm. might be. I've got, mm. Ultimately, it, 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 it's a, if you think on a societal level, mm. the logic should really be about optimization, ultimately. Um, but if you are, 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 are driven by intersectional ideology, yes. diversity, equity, and inclusion, highly contested, highly political concepts, which are now taken as, as, as gospel, Yes. If you're driven by that, then what you're doing is you're, you're, you're doing away with the, with the social logic that, that drives social, societal optimization, mm -hmm. i.e. merit or capacity, mm -hmm. etc. And also you're doing a great violence against uh, huge parts of the, of the population, not only patronising alleged minorities that need the uplifting of some way, which is a deep, deeply patronising and very undermining, I listened. I mean, so that 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 that's of, that's of itself. But it also has a lot. Even if you accept the, this this gospel, it has incredibly um, negative impacts. Take the university system. So we have EDI okay, in in the universities. If you look at the the most underrepresented groups now, increasingly there's a gender disparity across all degree levels, degree, degrees, masters and PhDs in favour of, of women. Fifty eight percent women. I think the last time I looked it was about fifty eight percent. If, if universities are the biggest accelerant of, of, you know, of, of earning capacity, etc., then that's baked in going forward, and those numbers are only getting more skewed. Again, you, you look at why, if you apply a sort of socioeconomic class, social economic analysis to this, yes. look at the data on white working class kids and their participation, especially at the Russell Group universities, the, the top universities, and it, there's radical un underrepresentation. Mm -hmm. So what gets me is the, on the EDI stuff in the university context, even when you look at the data on sure. participation of being, uh, black and ethnic minority students, black and minority ethnic staff, across all the, all the different uh, uh, senior, seniority levels too, they're massively overrepresented on a per capita and de population demographic basis. So even on a, even on a data level, none, none of this has any veracity mm -hmm. ultimately. But, but, but again, the, the fact that we've accepted this yes. as a social logic to organise our lives yes. is a massive failure. The reason, why, the, the reason why, in particular, I bring up the point of um, uh, diversity basically being a polite word for making things less white, in, the, in insofar as, as how it applies in this country, yeah. is because I think, I think what that goes to show is that a lot of the concepts and ideas which we're throwing up here about the, so the systemic undoing of coloniality or mm. all this yeah. sort of thing, when boiled down really just becomes it, it really it becomes clear for what it is which is sort of intellectualized window dressing for the for the furtherance of base ethnic power politics and yeah. I, I, I do think that it's kind of it's, it's, there's a race war rhetoric to cer it. certainly and I, I, I do think as well that there's a reason why I mean it's almost unfathomable to imagine a, a situation in which the Israelis built a legal apparatus mm -hmm. which would be de facto designed to make every single institution of that society less Jewish yeah. as a matter of policy. Yeah. Um, it's, it's completely impossible to imagine that. It's impossible to imagine that the, the, the Japanese doing that. And, and, and you know, Japan, Japan having its imperial history as well, yeah. much, much more bloody and much more violent imperial history than Britain's one. Well, but but, but, it, but even, even, even on, a, on a kind of historical basis, and again, I try and draw this out in the book, if you look at the history of pre-slavery pre, uh, uh, Africa, mm. uh, we, 
what, yeah. what was it characterized by? I mean, was it a Garden of Eden <laughs> where, you know, everything was bad? It was a Rousseauian paradise. Absolutely. It was nasty, brutish, and short. Mm. So, the, again, I cover some of the history. Massive intra African black slavery, yes. hierarchical African kingdoms, the Kingdom of Dahomey, the Sokoto Caliphate. One of the largest slaveholders uh, ever run the Zanzibar plantation system was Tipi Tip, who's an Afro Amani. So, it's the, so, so, so even then, this is garbled history, and essentially a lot of this, what you just said, is it, predicated on a very um, garbled historical interpretation of British history, which says, well, you know what, even if you don't like it, it's too bad, because this is a form of karmic payback yeah, yeah. for the history of colonialism and yeah. empire. Yes. Uh, and it, again, in the book, I look at the, what the social conditions were like for ordinary people, Again, it, so it seems to paint, because it, it's this generalised anti-whiteness that you see in, in this discourse of, of post-colonialism, what it does is it conflates what were the lives of often like aristocratic or economic mm. elites at the time yes. of slavery, tiny, tiny, tiny percent, with, with the generalised lives yes. of, of white, the vast majority of British people at the time of slavery who were in whose slums. Li whose lives were also pretty Hobbesian. Well, absolutely, in slums, mass social clearances. Mm. Yeah, I mean, even when you were down in the mines, at least you still had your white privilege. Well, exactly. Uh, but I think, and also too, there, we should maybe mention that there's still plenty of slaves around in Africa today. Absolutely. Um, now, I think certainly everybody at this table, and I'm going to assume 99.9% .9 of our audience agrees that DEI is bad. And for that remaining 0.1%, they should read my chapter in our new book that I explain why in great detail. But the question then begs itself, what the hell do we do about it? Well, what, what, in, in the American context, <coughs> I can speak more about the, the UK context, and I've said this before, but it, uh, it's a great frustration of mine. If you think about the way in which uh, progressivism has operated, if we want to talk about it in those terms, Think about the structure of power in this country. So you've got the government, you've got ministers in the government, okay? But, but, outs, but, but so much of British governance takes place outside of the government now. So you've got the, the Quangos, you've got uh, activist charities, uh, you've got this whole set of one step removed forms of governance mm. in this country, which run huge swathes of British life not been elected to power, not democratically accountable, but nonetheless dictate the life for the vast majority. I think the, the last time I looked, I think in 2019, I was looking at the data the other day, I need to get more up-to-date data. In 2019, British, the Quango system in this country consumed 300 billion pounds. Yes. So you've got this massive Quango system, and then you couple that with uh, the, the kind of echo chamber-like nature of our cultural debates in, in, in the M25. Yeah. Very much this kind of metropolitan elite debates. And then, and then again, concentrated forms of cultural media power. And people like you guys are doing <coughs> stuff about that. And there are these green shoots that have, that have sprung up. But yes. think about the power of the BBC. Yes. So that, that, that does, that's, not even, that's not even subject to the discipline of the market. If people don't want to listen to what the BBC pumps out, then they can't, not, they can't vote with their wallet. They have to pay it on pain of prison. Mm -hmm. so, so, so you've got this, so my great frustration in the UK context, to come back to your question, is you've got this one step remo removed form of governance, civil, serv civil service, quangos, etc. And then you also have forms of lawfare 
and sets of laws that have really been the enablers of a lot of the DEI cross-British institutional life. Yes. The Equality Act is, is one of the most important enablers. Yes. This was passed in the last three months of the, of the Blair government. With the help of Theresa May. Yeah, and then David Cameron picked it up and ran with it too, and it's still on the books. And it's worth saying as well, very quickly as a quick note, and I always make the stress to point this out, just because th th there is a risk of leaving the perception in people's minds that, gosh, the Conservative Party is really doing an excellent job. It's just being held back by all these one step removed institutions. The Conservative Party expanded the Equality Act in yeah. 2017. So I, I, at the very best, all you can say, all you can say for them is that um, they've ignored it. But it's probably true to say that they facilitated the, 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 the blob in this way. Yeah, they have. They have. And, and, um, and that's why it's a frustration when I see politicians chasing headlines, you know, oh, there's diversity managers in the National Health yeah. Service, or yeah. the, the Royal Air Force has got to do this, or <laughs> employ, have more of a diverse workforce. Because <coughs> they, they can turn around, and, and they can rightfully turn around and say, well, the reason we have to do this is because the Equality Act mandates us to discharge our public sector equality duty, mm -hmm. which imposes a legal uh, uh, form of governance on public sector bodies to promote um, uh, harmony amongst people with protected characteristics, race being one, gender, yes. sexuality, disability, etc. And they're now, and they're, sorry, I need to say, and the 2017 Conservative expansion of that um, imposed a duty on public bodies, uh, an obligation on public bodies to publish yearly measurable equity objectives, which would then, which then meant, of course, that they had to hire a huge DEI yeah. staff in order to make sure that those reports can be written. But, but even then, the frustration on that, I mean, even if you, even if you accepted the equity, yes. equality, uh, diversity, include, even if you accepted that faith, which is a kind of, essentially, it's, it's the faith of socialism, really, it is. Yes. It is a kind of socialism. Sort of, demo, uh, sort of, sort of demographic socialism. Yeah, it's, even, if you, even if you accept that, then even the way they've gone about uh, conducting the data analysis, so the gender, gender equality audits, I mean, it, it's not, it's not comparing people doing the same jobs, for example. It's, it's yeah. based on, a, on, a, on, a, on an average earning. Right. So you're comparing CEOs yeah. with cleaners. Yes, or and, air hostesses with pilots. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, and, and, and I, I, I'm for gender equality, and I think if people are doing the same job, you know, I think it, I, I, I have no problem with that. But, but if you're conducting the data in, in a way that is completely any basic, anybody with a basic grasp of quantitative data, and I don't, by the way, but anybody, I mean, it's not hard to work it's out. It's pretty cut candid. It's, it's not even just cat can. It's completely <laughs> wrong. Do you, uh, this, this is the, the irony is. Do you know? Do you know if you want gender equality yes. in terms of pay? You, you know the best way of doing it. Just get, get rid of your female staff. No, the best way. The best. <laughs> the, the best. The best way of doing it is whenever a woman requests to go from full time to part time work, you refuse that. You refuse uh, that request. Yeah. Mm. Because essentially, there is a there it's is one of the reasons why there is this disparity. Well, that's that's the main one: the part-time versus full-time work. Although women part-time workers earn six percent more than male part-time workers, mm. uh, but even then, you you adjust for age. I think uh, young women now out earn men. So, but so even on that, even on it, it's constantly cooking the books. It, yeah. It's cack-handed. Even if you even if you accept the value system of EDI. The way that they that they do it is they they ultimately say this is this is like one of the, the central te logical tenets of the faith, and that is we have to look that we have to foreground identity as as, as the basis of social life. Bosh, we we put that in the bank, and then we have to we have to look at disparities yes. of, some, of some kind, 
and uh, but not positive disparities. So Chinese men or Indian men out and white men. Yeah. We don't want to look at that. We've just put that over there. Or there are massive dis disparities between young African men in terms of educational outcomes and young Afro-Caribbean men, even, yeah. even in the black category. We yes. don't want to look at that. Yeah. So all we want to look at is neg negative disparities. Right, and if there's any negative disparity, we foreground the identity intersectional ideology to, to explain that, and therefore it proves that there's an underlying syst system of discrimination. Mm -hmm. So essentially, rather than conducting a, a, a multiple variable analysis of how you account for that, yes. if even if you give a toss, I mean, the, the amount of our social life dedicated to working out angels dancing on pinheads about yeah. minor things like that, but even if you even if you accept the the faith, right? To, to work that out, rather than conducting multiple variable analysis as to how we explain this negative disparity, having not all the positive disparities, we just rather than conducting it. So, what, what, what? So the, the progressives and the left, what do they say? They say, oh, it's proof of systemic discrimination. It's an ism. There's mm. an certain ism here. That's how you explain it oh, okay. every time. So I agree that all of that's annoying. Um, the ideology is pathological, the Conservative Party is at fault, the blob is completely out of control, but what the hell can we do about it? What is actually can be done in practical terms? Is it as simple as just repealing the Equality Act and repealing all of its derivatives? Well, I, I, think, I think that what these, I mean, this is a massive question, uh, because I've just come from, some, from somebody, just, even when we're talking at this level, right, you have to think about how this then translates on the doorstep. In, 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 in electoral terms? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, <coughs> what, this, this is operating at a kind of philosophical level. So it's how an MP would take this away and will translate this on the doorstep. And most people, you know, it's about mortgages or their kids' schools or rubbish or literal yeah. or local issues. So, so, so there is that. But what I think needs to happen is there needs to be uh, a much greater cognizance of um, of what's gone wrong. Obviously, a, a diagnostic of what's gone wrong, and uh, some form of mapping. <laughs> this is all very vague, right? But some form of mapping done where you can. I think what you basically need a strategic framework. What's gone wrong, right? And um, and then how you go about solving it. Yes, but I mean, so but with what Ron DeSantis has done in Florida, is that not a very admirable model for, for rooting out some of this stuff? And is it not just a question? Of, I wonder whether it's a question of persuasion so much as a question of cajones. I mean, if, you, if, 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 if you're, I don't imagine that most people on the doorstep, if you were to tell them in simple terms what DEI is, I don't think it would take much time to persuade them that it wasn't a very good idea. It seems to me that any government that is intent on doing all of the things that would be required to root this stuff out, at least yeah. in the public sector. Yeah. If, 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 I mean, if, uh, what's the, if BlackRock wants to continue doing this mm -hmm. for its own part, then mm -hmm. fine, I suppose, let it, let it do that. But rooting it out in the public sector, making sure that no public money is, is going towards these, <coughs> these inherently racist schemes, I would say, anti-white anti racist schemes and occasionally anti-Semitic mm -hmm. um, racist schemes as well. Uh, it, it doesn't seem to me to be the case that we would have to persuade too many people of that I think we... agenda. I think, we, and when I say we, I mean the UK needs that, absolutely. They, they, a lot can be learned from the Americans. Um, but I think, too, that we need a kind of a reformation of our conservative media ecosystem. And that we're spending so much time in the UK focused on like the latest like woke outrage, like some Green Party minister in a wig, you know, talking yeah. about transphobia or some bullshit. And it, and it gets views and people laugh, you know, it's, it's fun to, and 
you know, the mockery is important. <laughs> but it seems to me that the more I look at America versus, versus Britain, um, there's a critical misstep in that people are not willing to do like what Chris Rufo has just done yeah. with Harvard and Chris <clears throat> Barnett, who I believe is also here in England, so he can carry the mantle of um, actually doing the investigative reporting work. Steve Edgington's like really the only person I know of who's doing mm. stuff like this in a serious way. To t- tell our viewers what um, uh, Rufo has done recently. Ah, um, well, the president of Harvard, who is ironically named uh, Dr. Gay, um, <laughs> has. Uh, it turns out that she might have plagiarized her entire doctoral thesis, mm. and her H index is about ten. For people who don't know who what an H index is, it's basically like a measure of your citations in academia. And 10 is abysmal. 10 is abysmal for me. Like if I was still in academia coming up on on 30, for you to be the president of Harvard with an H index of 10 is like unacceptable. Um, So they've they've done a deep dive into into her work and they've they've publicly named and shamed her. And it seems to me, Poppy too, I guess, has done a little bit of stuff like this with the charity industrial complex. But we need to reformat the way that we're doing conservative media in the UK to be much more focused on... Getting hands dirty. Getting hands dirty and making small but actionable wins. I mean, it's, it's all well and good to point out the theory. I don't mean to get up on my soapbox here, but it's like when it comes down to it, you know, the wins will be made <coughs> on, you know, a million tiny little battlefronts. There will not be like some sort of like grand revolution. Well, I, I, think, I think that, uh, I think you're right. I think that we need far more robust confidence in pushing back. I worked on the academic freedom legislation uh, that, a great example. Yeah, yeah. so that, uh, that, that's, but that's one of the few things I can point to and say, well, that, that was a major win in the culture war. Mm. Um, there was a bunch of us, of like not eight or so academics and a couple of like civil society organizations that strategized and planned and came together and aligned the stars and push, 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 and got that over the line. And, that, and the regime, that kicks in next year. And that's a ma- that is a major, major win. Uh, in terms of at least creating a beachhead upon which you can push back against some of the EDI or the more illiberal aspects of, of EDI, ultimately, and the ide- ideological authoritarianism that we're seeing in, in the university. So, so that's a win. I think a next Conservative administration will have to reform or get rid of, in some profound way, the Equality Act. Mm. It ha- it'll, it'll have to also reform um, the, the, the nature of British governance. governance. I can't see how you can have you can call yourself a democracy when you have a government in power and ministers basically don't control the way in which policy is carried out. Mm. You have uh, a deeply embedded civil service uh, who are often ideologically opposed to conservative policies, mm. uh, and I, I just think that you. I don't know. I, I need one. We all need to think about how we reform that. But you need to reform that. Whether whether it's ultimately reforming the civil service so people can get fired uh, there's much e- even the logic of the public sector in mm. terms of what are the error correction mechanisms within the public sector at least in the market system if you make bad coffee I'll, I'll, on, a, on a societal level ultimately people yes. will stop using your shop and they'll go elsewhere and other and other things it's, it's, there is a kind of organic logic to it mm. And voting with one's wallet, you know, is part of that process. But within the public sector, so much of, of the internal error correction mechanism logic is completely and utterly broken. Why? Because there's no incentive to fix it. If there's a problem in the public sector, what do you do? You simply expand the bureaucracy. You, yes. you appoint more bureaucrats. More commissions. More commissions. We see it with the National Health Service. The National Health, Health Service, and uh, it consumes, I think it's now about 25% 
of the, of the national budget of this country. Mm-hmm. And that's only going to grow as we go forward. And, and so that, and, and this idea that Tories are underfunded is absolute nonsense. Mm. Every year the money's gone up, 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 it's up. It's very up. amusing as well, given that most of... No, I wouldn't just want to blame the left, but given that the left is so obsessed with like, changing the structures of our society, they're not remotely interested in structural problems on this level. But, like, but, it's just but, throwing more money at it. But, but because basically most, most of the left is in the public sector. Of course. I mean, yeah. the late, if you look at the Labour those Party... Are good, those are good structures. Yeah, yeah so... The, 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 uh, yeah. yeah, so... So, so the, 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 the institutional logic guiding a large chunk of what constitutes British life is broken insofar as, uh, I mean, this isn't an anti-public sector rant, by the way, but it is, it is, we have to be cognizant about the error correction mechanisms within any large institutional structure. And the error correction mechanisms in the civil service, for example, are comp- in the public sector in general, seem to me to be very, very broken. Something's going to have to give. You can't just keep taking more and more money away from people and shoveling into black holes mm. and, and, and just growing middle management endlessly and overworking nurses and doctors and growing this kind of bureaucratic, technocratic class because that's what we've got. So I think, go back to your question, I think that's a, that's a fundamental process of reform. Mm. How you do that, whether you cut back on, uh, you, you just introduce, you streamline things a lot more you introduce different incentive structures, you make it possible to fire people and get rid of them. Uh, just maybe a sl- something more along on those kind of lines, because even if you get a Tory majority, 80 seats, mm. it hits, it hits this, this, this governance wall and this, 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 the, the blob. Yes. So the, the reform of the public sector, reform of the civil service, the abolition or the major reform of certain types of laws that really had a very damaging effect on British institutional life. Uh, and then a rediscovery of ourselves. It does seem to me that our cultural elites and our elites in general are, are so consumed with guilt and so consumed with a kind of a civilizational funk mm. where they're, they're afraid to even assert themselves or, or any, any sense of authority and they, they crumble. They're constantly crumbling. So I th- and, and I think that that is actually very da- civilizationally dangerous in the context of a more multipolar international system. So in the book, I relate that to geopolitics at the, at, towards the, the, the last part, the last third of the book. I talk about some of these issues in this bigger geopolitical context because, you know, history is, is endless and we have the rise and fall of great civilizations. You've done that fantastic series on the West, the mm-hmm. rise of the, you know, the West. And all that. <coughs> so, um, so we are now in a more multipolar international system. And, and, and why do you think that's significant in the light of the issues we've been raising? Because ultimately uh, any... Self-confident civilizations... So, well, yeah. Sorry, civilizations lacking self-confidence don't do well in the, in the, war, in the battle of great powers? Well, ultimately, <coughs> to have a national interest or to have an interest or to have, a, have the capacity to assert yourself, you have to know, you have to have an identity. Yes. Is an identity. An interest is emergent from an identity. Uh, and, if, and if the identity is one where you're on your knees and you're begging for your right to exist and you're repudiating your culture, you're repudiating, repudiating your civilization, mm. and it's characterized by overwhelming guilt. And then the world is getting more hostile at the same time because, mm. of the, mul- because the unipolar moment is over. The uni- yeah, and, 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 the irony, obviously, and the irony for me is a lot, of, a lot of this stuff that we've seen in social theory, it was really predicated on uh, the, the unipolar moment, the American, American. These, these indulgences have been let loose, so to speak, by that unipolar moment? Because because it's safe to do so yes. because ultimately well, it seems safe well, we, 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 yeah. it, 
America really is the, is the linchpin of the broader Western, you know, liberal international order. Sure. Ultimately, uh, if America literally just clicked and it stopped existing, then you'd all, immediately what you'd see would be the return of, of, of balancing behavior and great power politics in the European continent. There's no doubt about that. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, you'd see you'd see a rapid nuclearization and great power balancing in, in East Asia as well. So people, you know, slate America, but it's it's superintendents, although we are in a more multipolar international system, it's su it's strategic superintendents. Still exerts that gravitational. Yeah, it's kind of a counterfactual. What would it what would it what would the world look like absent that? And I think we don't we don't really Europe in the nineteenth century. Yeah, yeah, we don't really grasp that. So I so I, I think so I think that, that, that we should be more cognizant of that. And and I think a lot of this the, the stuff that we we're, we're talking about this dalliance, this social theory, this, yes. and and even the the, 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 the privileged nature of the, of, of the university system, mm. it does rest on a cultural and political dispensation that is is, is in a process of flux and change, um, in terms of the return of great power competition, but also broader dislocations in, in the global economy. Do you not think that's already kind of happening with America? I mean, if you look at you can. I don't know. I mean, it, I wouldn't necessarily call like Ukraine and Israel colonies, but it does seem to me that neither of them would be engaging in the wars that they're in without American support. And even even then, um, I think uh, Benjamin Netanyahu just basically told the Americans he was like, "We're not we're not wrapping this up in a couple of weeks." When the Secretary of Defense basically told them, "You know, gonna gonna move on here," he said, "This is something we're going to be engaged in for a long time." You see, China starting to make more serious uh, you know, threatening movements towards Taiwan. You see kind of the boondoggle that was the retreat from Afghanistan. It seems to me that America hasn't disappeared, but it has become much less of a sort of a congealing factor for world stability. Do you not worry that in the coming, you know, five, ten years, given the trend lines that we're on, there's not going to be a resurgence of American, you know, strength around the world and that as it kind of retreats into itself to battle, you know, blue versus red, mm. which is flipped the other way around in, in the States, um, that we'll see a return of great power politics and that Europe is actually kind of lagging behind in this regard. Yeah, it's a complicated picture. I, I Ukraine looks less certain now than it did, you know, obviously six months ago. Uh, I My take on where America is at is I think it's in I think it's in a much stronger position than people tend to think it, it is, for a variety of reasons. I think economically, it's 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 doing it's doing pretty very well. Uh, the the onshoring has uh, really damaged China. China is seen as, as as the great challenger to American hegemony. The rise of China, uh, all the rest of it. That's fairly bipartisan as well. That that understanding in America now. Yeah, yeah. So, I, but I, so China is is seen as this exactly. So China is seen as the key threat. But my take on China is I, I'm I I think that it's facing quite strong sort of secular decline. If you look at its demographics, it's really on a on a, it's a 1.3 billion by 2050. It's about 700 million. So there's a massive demographic demographic decline in China. Its economy is not doing well. I was looking at the FDI, the um, foreign direct investment stats the other day on China. Mm. There's huge outpourings pulling out of China yes. as uh, in particular Western multinationals are onshoring and friendshoring in the anticipation of potential war with Taiwan. Also on, on, on the, the coattails of the, of the pandemic and all the stuff mm. that we saw with PPE. But also 
through this incentivization that we're seeing under Biden's uh, uh, IRA, I can't remember what it's called, what it stands for. The IRS? No, no. The, it's, it's, uh, what does it do? It's, 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 it's wrapped in environmental. It's the I, I, Biden did a big, big thing, IRA. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Environmental. I, I can't remember what it, Anyway, sorry. <laughs> you look it up, Google it. But it's a, it's a huge, like $400 billion worth of incentive structure to onshore and friendshore, yeah. friendshore uh, microchips, advanced computer processing, all the rest of it. Now, China will react to that and it is reacting to that. Yeah. But China has really been cut out of a large chunk of the, of the processing market, the microconductor market, sure. etc. And it's feeling the pain. That's why Xi Jinping, I think, went to uh, the States recently and met with Biden. Yes. He, want, he, wants to, he wants to try and have a sort of rapprochement in some ways. So I th and, and then you look at the strategic dilemmas that China has. So it's on demographic decline. Economically, it's, uh, it's not doing too well at all. It's, I think it's kind of in the middle income trap now. Uh, and as its population gets older, the, the, the manufa manufacturing nature of the Chinese economy is obviously going to go. So, that, so that the edge that it had there is going to slide. And the final point is it's in a very, very tough neighborhood. China's in a really, really tough neighborhood. If you think about it, not, not only does it have huge land borders with India, for example, mm. and Russia. Now, Russia at the moment is a sort of frenemy, but historically they've had lots of wars. And that, that, that relationship will always be a bit funny, mm. a funny one. And it's got India, it's got a lot going on, it's got internal unrest. And then it's surrounded by states. It has naval conundrums, strategic conundrums too. Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, the Philippines. So it's in a very, very tough neighborhood. Uh, and then the AUKUS deal with the UK and Australia has also beefed up that security alliance. <coughs> and there are elements to the AUKUS uh -huh. deal, pillar two, where you're going to see even greater technological innovation mm. and integration yes. between the Western economies. So on, 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 the, on, on the political economic front, I think China is in a, is in a less good place than is popularly perceived. A lot, a, a lot of that is in, certain, in a certain sense good news you're talking about secular decline in, in China and all sorts of metrics uh, along which this is measurable. But is that also not a cause for concern? Maybe in the short, maybe not in the long term, but in the short term, is that not a, a special cause for concern? Because, because I mean, ever since Deng Xiaoping, arguably, the, the, the whole legitimacy of the Chinese Communist Party has been based on economic growth. And, yeah. and all of these secular metrics going upwards, well, the, yeah. the, 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 the more that ceases, they see, that, that ceases to be evident in the lives of ordinary yeah. ch Chinese people, doesn't that mean that the Chinese Communist Party is much more likely to pivot to something more ideal, something more romantic, like nationalism, as the as the form of legitimacy? Well, also, and I that mean, would accel that would accelerate conflict in that region if they were to take Taiwan on on that pretext. For there's, example, there's an even shorter term problem there that I don't think a lot of people talk about, which is because <coughs> of the one-child policy. I think China has 30 million more men than women yeah. who have no chance of finding a wife. So yeah. they're going to have to start importing a lot of chicks from yeah. God knows where, yeah. they're going to have to send them off to die. Well, it, it, there's, a, there's a whole sub-field and theory in international relations called the excess male problem, yeah. which it does a lot on that. In <laughs> fact, good a, former for society. a former colleague of mine, she was the leader on all of that stuff. That's, that's interesting too, obviously, excess men, you know. You know. So, 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 but you're absolutely right, Harrison, insofar as, it, as those secular trends heat up. The, the, the deal post Tiananmen in China was... Don't ever rock the boat again politically, but it will make you rich. Yes. Um, if, if the wheels are coming off that now, and it is stuck more in that middle income trap with a massive out, uh, retraction of FDI, yes. economic problems, cut out of supply chains more, although that's still very dodgy, in term, not least in relation to net, net zero technologies, 
if that's going on, then A, that domestic deal becomes much more frayed between the Chinese people and the CCP, mm-hmm. but also in the context of the, the personality cult that we've seen now with Xi Jinping. He's taking it in a very bad direction, very much now about the personality cult, all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. So he's, he's in a very much of a low information echo chamber. It, 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 the Chinese leadership, he's kind of eliminated other centers of rival power. Uh, Jack Ma, I think, was the, the mm-hmm. you know, and yeah. he's got Alibaba. Was that, was that and, the, the chap very ostentatiously marched out of the. the no, that, that was that was the, that was the <laughs> formal leader. So that, that, that itself, I mean, that that, that itself, it's I mean, it looks yeah. tough, but that sends a very bad signal. Yeah. And he, he Jack Ma, the Alibaba, Alibaba. Yeah. so oh, he okay. was the kind of Elon Musk or the Zuckerberg of mm-hmm. China, and he's I think he's been done away with. Persona non grata. So yeah, so he, he essentially has eliminated centers of 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 power. Because he wants to consolidate rule, but also that means he's, he's in a very low, he's in a kind of low information echo chamber. It's just it's the power of his mind Wait, now. It's harder to correct course in that environment. Exactly, and he can make strategic miscalculations. But going back to your point, obviously that is very dangerous because if you have a dictatorship like that, mm-hmm. and it, and the wheels start to come off, then history history would tend to suggest that it's quite possible that they will start taking riskier moves. That's what that's mm. what that's that's what that's why Japan bombed Pearl Harbor. The yeah, Japanese exactly. bombed because yeah. they, they felt squeezed the, on all of these secular points. Absolutely, they'd lose the oil. And yeah, exactly. the, 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 yeah. Do you think Russia's in a similar situation with Putin? I, I, I think Russia is interesting. I think Russia in relation to... Uh, is nowhere near as economically strong as China. Well, yeah. No, nowhere near. I mean, I think prior to the Ukraine invasion... Has an economy the size of Italy's. I think it was, yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah and, but, but that's prior to the invasion, so even yeah. less now. So I, th- I think that, that that's... So I think Russia's in a very bad space, even it's not too dissimilar to uh, China, especially the Slavic side of Russia, and demography-wise, has really gone down bad. And if you look at a lot of the casualties on the Russian side, they're actually drawn from a lot of the, 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 sort of the, the non-Slavic populations, the real poor rural parts have sucked them into this meat machine yeah. and put them on the front line. So, so, so I think Russia is uh, in, is in a very, very bad place. Uh, however, obviously, it does look like now that the Americans have got bored or tired of the Ukraine conflict, mm-hmm. and that will seek some kind of political resolution and force that upon Zelensky. The mood music has massively changed, I- and 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 Putin will be able to obviously spin that as a win. Yes. But I think on a secular, on a sort of on a secular basis, I think Russia has done very badly. But having said that, its economy now, I think 20% of it now is dedicated to war production hmm. and war industrial production. And that's another thing that these conflicts have shown us is that um, is, is the, the, the lack of uh, arms industrialization that we've got in the West. America's in a good space. It's doing a lot of stuff on satellites and a new generation of drones. That's that's another thing. So that that's in a very very good space. But obviously the shells it needs to produce in in a form of mechanized in, it, trench warfare is is radically under. Whereas the Russians have just pumped huge amounts of this out. Mm. Um, so yeah. So but I think that just to finally wrap this up. I see, it looks like they may impose some sort of peace deal on Zelensky. I think he's actually said that there's going to be peace deal talks in um, Switzerland 
during the like alongside the World Economic Forum. He, he being Biden or Zelensky. Zelensky. Yeah. But 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 also but then interesting the geopolitics of of, of Europe have changed. So Russia, U, U.S. Thank goodness for the U.S. in relation to its foundational element in this broader world order system, right? So we've got that. But Europe is in a total mess in relation to its security, its military industrial uh, production. Germany has radically underplayed itself. Germany basically got into bed with Putin. Yeah. Uh, Merkel did a great disservice. You remember when Trump went to that conference and, yes. and Merkel and they all castigated him. Classic yeah. It was actually spot, it was completely it was spot, spot on. on. The yeah. German delegation laughing at him in the UN La as well. Laughing at him. Mm. Essentially, he was spot on. I mean, Germany... Germany, the EU is about the constitutionalization of German power. It's, it's solving the German problem, right? And it's about the constitutionalization of German power, and German elites like that. You can see why. You know that, that's 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 fine, and it provides a little mouthpiece for the French to sort of you know and the, all the rest. Of it. So you've got that going on, but what they have not been able to sort out is any greater degree of defence. Uh, uh, interoperability and defence industrial production. Because why? Because this is the classic case of any alliance system, the EU, etc. That the nature, the supranational nature of, of the political logics, always become overdetermined by the national so, so interest. So it has the, Oh, it, oh, sorry. I thought yeah. you were going somewhere else with that. Continue. Well, so well, so that that's the, that was the problem ultimately with the EU or, or any any form of alliance or supranational system yeah. is invariably you're going to get jockeying. It within can, the system, within the system, by by the national interests of the states within the system. But wasn't there this belief that because you say that the EU is the constitutionalization of Germany, which is a very neat way of putting it, um, given that that is the case, it wasn't there this belief on the part of Germany that we could we we could relinquish the need to have any real serious national army because we could have an EU EU army. Well, so, so, so military, so, militarization so, becomes supranational. So the, as well. the, the, the constitutionalization of German power, right? So in the EU context was ultimately about, given geopolitics, i.e. how foreign security policy is related to where you are geographically, and Germany has land borders and Russia is the same, you know, we're an island, so we have a very different geopolitical dispensation. So the constitutionalization of German power in the EU context was, it was exactly about the fact that Germany would always emerge as an economic hegemon. And when you have economic hegemony, what happens from that? You tend to get military hegemony too. And we've had two big world wars and we don't want that to happen again. Yes. So German post-war elites accepted that and said, well, we're happy to basically shelter under the ages of NATO yes. and America's strategic and superintendents. That's not a problem. In fact, we can free ride on that, which yes. is what Trump was angry yes. about. Yes. So we can, but, but nonetheless, we, are, we will remain, we will become, and we are now, the economic hegemon in the EU. Context. Because it's inevitable, given our It's inevitable. Size. It's just yeah. a massive economy. They yeah. save a huge amount. Particularly after reunification. Yeah, massively mm. so. I mean, that, and in that itself, yeah. it was incredible what they did. They, they reunified an incredible industrial incorporation, huge investments into Eastern Europe. So essentially, the EU and the, you know, the, the, the ECB is based on the Bundesbank. It's an attempt, the, the, it's an attempt to tame, Germ te well, tame Germany militaristically well, while keeping it well, economically Not, not even powerful. tame. German elites accept that. They like that. Yes. They're, they're very happy yeah. to basically shelter under the ages of NATO. And when big campaigns like Gulf War One or even Ukraine happens, they don't want to get involved militarily, but they'll write they'll write fat checks. They'll write fat checks, and it's like that's fine. And it kind of it's a deal that works basically, right? But what Germany gets to do is ultimately to construct the to invest in the EU and, mm. and, and and sort of write the checks for the EU. It creates then export markets for the EU. The euro is very good for Germany's yeah, exports vis-a-vis -vis the euro. So so that that's the logic driving it. Think about it. Whenever there's a crisis, 
in the EU. Who do you get on the blower to? Who do they call? They're not calling Portugal, <laughs> are they? They're not calling Spain. They're calling, they're calling Germany. So how do we get on to... Ge- so, so, so the constitutionalisation of the German problem, but, but, the, but the logic was always... The problem was it was always overdetermined by the national interests of, of the powerful states within that alliance system, mm-hmm. the EU or even NATO. So I think going back to the point about European security, the problem that you've got in, in the context of European security is that uh, the, the, any kind of alliance framework, states will jockey. They'll say, well, can you, a French, the French are going to allow their armies to be led by a German. Hmm. Or uh, it's like, it's the pork barreling. So the French would, would want, wants, well, we're, we're going to make this Raphael fighter jet, but we want it to be made in France. And Germany, no, but Spain says, no, but we want it to be made in, in Madrid. I mean, this is, do you see what I mean? So, yeah, yeah. so essentially, the, <coughs> the, 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 the supranationalization of these forms of alliance making yeah. invariably are overdetermined by the national interests of the, in particular, the powerful states. But do you think these defense threats are actually going to accelerate maybe a dissolution of the EU? Which is something I've been wondering about a lot. I don't, I don't know. I think that, well, for a start, you've still got NATO. Mm. All right. So NATO will overdetermine and solve a lot of the collective action problems that uh, Europe faces vis-a-vis its defence and security. If Trump gets in, that'll be it'd be interesting to see what happens on on that on that front vis-a-vis mm. NATO. Yes. Uh, so we'll see what happens there. So uh, I think that that. But then what's going back to the Ukraine thing? I think it's more than possible that what you'll see is some sort of defence deal. And I think the West will push very, very hard not to necessarily have Ukraine incorporated into NATO. That would most probably be a red, red, red line for Russia. Russia. Yeah, yeah. But essentially, Ukraine will be beefed up over time as an incredible buffer state against Russia. Uh, and then also the, the big thing that you're really seeing now is the emergence of Poland mm-hmm. as a major power, in, in a major land power. Yes. It's bought loads of kit the Americans, but it's bought, lo- it's bought loads and loads of kit from the South Koreans. Yeah. And that kit is, is very, very good. Very, it works really, really well. Do you think it's interesting how little coverage there's been in the media in all over the West, but the UK, um, on the like wall that Poland has built? Like Poland literally built a wall. Like Trump said he was going to build a wall and Poland actually pulled it off. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's <laughs> fascinating because everybody says like that can't be done. Yeah. But little old Poland seems to have pulled it off no problem. Yeah, well, I mean, so I, I think that Poland, well, the, the interesting about that is that Poland obviously has that sense of national purpose uh, and not least. And, and, and it's, not, it's not naval gazing. No, it's not naval gazing. But then it also it has that tragic history with Russia. Yeah. It has that long history with Russia. So, so that the potential danger, this is just a potential hypothetical into the future, is that Poland is, very, is already very effective militarily. And it will become more so. Poland, I suspect, will be one of the dominant land powers in Europe in the next 10 years, yeah. bar none. And so then you've got a very powerful Poland that's historically not got along too well with Russia. Certainly not. So there's, there's the, the problem is, will Poland wish to drag NATO into under Article 5? Who knows? Yeah. But I'll say this as well about Russia. I know this is, this is going to sound absolutely crazy and fanciful, <coughs> but I really do feel it's a great tragedy that we've gone this way with Russia. Mm. I really do. I think Russia is uh, a great power. 
it's, inc it's contributed enormously to world civilization. We should not have these people as our enemies. They're good people. And obviously led by, you know, but I, I think that's a great tragedy. And I think that a lot of that is also traceable to the non-resolution and, and, and uh, of the post -cold, early post-Cold War NATO security architectures. Mm. And I think that what we should have done ultimately there is to, even now you can imagine, and that sounds crazy given Ukraine, but in an ideal world, if we have a peace deal that's, that sort of locks something into peace in the Ukraine context, but beyond that, have a new uh, discussion and dispensation in relation to European security, post-NATO European security architectures that ideally incorporates Russia or, or Russia's nat national security interests into it. Because it, it has legitimate national security interests. Yes. In a, in a post-NATO, I know it sounds crazy. Well, we're, very, we're very close to running out of time, so I just so, want to ask so. you very quickly, when you say a post-NATO security context, do you mean like an extra-NATO security context? Well, so NATO would be well, obsolete, NATO would be, would be gone, and, and there wouldn't be that sort of liberalising push which is inherent to NATO, of course, because in order to be a member of NATO, you need to be a democracy, you need to have... <coughs> there are all sorts of conditions that come with that. Well, N NATO historically was set up to contain the Soviet Union, and obviously in the post-Cold War period, the Soviet Union's gone, and obviously it's continued to sweep eastward. Uh, and and that's I mean that that has had all kinds of interesting effects you know in relation to democratization etc. But I think that obviously that has rattled mm. Russia's national security elites. Yes. And I think that ultimately Europe can never be secure or can relax around some of these geopolitical issues unless there's a settlement of unless sorts. The, unless there's some kind of settlement with Russia. Mm -hmm. Right, and and, in, and if you do that, if you get, I know, you know, I keep saying it sounds crazy, but I won't say it again. But uh, some resolution of e European security architectures that incorporates the, the legitimate concerns of Russia's on on part of Russian national security. Yes. And if you do that, two plus two equals four. If you do that, then suddenly you get uh, great power yes. in in this new European security architecture that sits right along the border with China. China. What we've done, we've pushed China and Russia together. Yes. In a, it's a kind of weird symbiotic relationship, but that's, that's, that's what this whole thing has done. So in, in a kind of geopolitical sense, you want to wedge those apart. And to do that, Nixon you, style. You, yeah, you need to ultimately to incorporate Russia into a post-NATO framework, ideally, that does that. If, if the long game, and the existential civilizational long game in terms of existential stakes yes. is really about China. Yes. So final question here before we wrap up. Um, you know, since 2020, we've kind of, you know, the, the end of history has kicked, you know, been kicked away and, you know, we're back into this sort of era of geopolitical change that mm -hmm. we haven't really seen since the fall of the Berlin Wall. Do you have any big predictions, and we won't hold you to them because they end up being wrong, um, for some sort of October 7th or Ukraine invasion or Taiwan invasion or something similar along the lines that we might see in 2024? What should we be looking out for? Hmm. Uh, I don't really operate on a year basis. I operate on a 5, 10, 15, 20 year basis. But I think going forward, I think that what we'll see is Xi Jinping went to, the, to America mm -hmm. and it, was, it wasn't picked up that much, but there was a very interesting sum reporting around it. And he basically said to Biden, if the big deal on Taiwan is the, the advanced micro computing processing stuff, then that's, that's what keeps you worried about 
Taiwan in, in, invested there, you've got five years to build up domestically. Mm. So essentially, his, Xi Jinping has said you've got, you've got a five-year window, right? And we have the Taiwanese elections next year too. Then that, we, you want to watch that one. That, that could go one of two ways. One is sort of more pro-reunification with China or anti that. Mm. If it goes pro-unification, then then that relaxes it to quite a large extent. So I think I think that I think you'll see that. I think you'll likely. I think for, also for domestic purposes as well in, in in the US, you'll see a push now towards some sort of peace deal with Russia. The counteroffensive on the part of Ukraine clearly hasn't gone according to plan. Uh, you know, it's been a that that hasn't quite worked, obviously, uh, and I think that. Um, what you'll see, though, is hopefully the West will resist any kind of too much of a deal in relation to Euro- Ukrainian security build-ups. Mm. And I think it, the, the, the best case is what I said about a post-NATO European security architecture, but that, that, would, be, that would be on a 5 to 10 to 15, 20-year basis. That's a long game. But I think it, to, to mitigate against that for now, it is necessary to have Ukraine... As a, as, a, as a kind of buffer state, a buffer state ultimately, yes. against Russian aggression. Uh, and I think that, that you could do that quite easily. But obviously that, that depends on the, on the political deal that's cut. Sure. Uh, in relation to European security, I think it's an absolute shambles. What I, would, what I, think, I think the UK at the moment is doing some really interesting and good stuff. I think what we're seeing now are sort of new security alliances begin to emerge. I think the AUKUS deal between the US the UK and Australia is, is a really interesting one. You've got Pillar 1, which is about nuclear submarines, right? But the Pillar 2 is, is really where I think the action's at, because that is about greater defence integration. And, and if you think about the most cutting edges of capitalism and our economies, a lot of it comes out of the military-industrial com- uh, complex, mm. internet, supercomputing, miniaturisation, containerization, robotics, etc. And so the pillar two aspects of Yorkers deal, I think, are really where speak to that greater political economy integration amongst the dynamic advanced economies of the West. So I think those are really good signs, too. Hmm. Um, uh, yeah. Well, listen, Doug Stokes, it's been absolutely fascinating and incredibly varied as well. Thank you so much for coming on to Deprogrammed. Evan, thanks as ever. You've been watching Deprogrammed. Make sure to like, subscribe, leave a comment if you wish, and we shall see you on the next one. Hello, if you're enjoying the New Culture Forum channel and you believe in our mission, may I invite you to join our membership scheme at the link below or on our website, newcultureforum.org.uk. Our work is more important now than ever and we have great plans ahead for the future, but we can't do it without your support. From as little as £3 per month, you can help ensure that we continue on our mission. As a member, you'll receive a range of benefits, including access to exclusive content, invitations to our private events, including here at our studios, free copies of our books, and much, much more, including, of course, our famous NCF mug. If you aren't able to become a member, then please help us by clicking this button and subscribing to our channel. It's completely free. Just remember, to also click the bell icon so that you can get notifications when we post new videos. Thank you.